to be here this morning. I've been traveling the past couple weeks, my wife Jane and I, teaching in a discipleship training school for Youth of the Mission, as well as building a house down in Ensenada, Mexico. And I, I got to teach my, which has become my favorite thing to teach in discipleship training school, which is a section on Christian history. And I'll often start off that that week of teaching by showing some slides, and it starts with this one. Andrea, if you show that first one up there. I ask him, what is their concept of what Jesus looked like? When, you, when I say, what do you think Jesus looked like, physically looked like, um, you know, all of us have an image that pops into our head, or at least a significant one. Um, different images throughout history, you can kind of click through there that you can see from classic iconography back with the early church to more contemporary uh, depictions <coughs> of Jesus with that. And of course, it's not just, not just white Jesus. Um, you know, we have Jesus as depicted with different ethnic groups and traditions as well. Uh, I, I really like the anime or the manga, the manga Jesus down there uh, with that. Now, if you, those of you who are a student who have studied this before, you'll know that the image on the left is actually uh, archaeologists, anthropologists have looked back and they tried to as closely approximate what Jesus might have actually looked like physically if he was a first century Palestinian Jew. And that is the depiction that they have. Uh, one, one more that was recent that was uh, really well done is we have to remember Jesus was Middle Eastern. I mean, he was Jewish in that. And, and it's good to counter these things but more important than what Jesus physically looked like is to understand who Jesus actually is. And so there are depictions of that that we have that show depict Jesus in his glory um, with this. And then also, you know, often if you were like me and grew up in a church with stained glass, you would understand that depictions of Jesus like this. And those are truly glorious, and that's good. We're getting closer we're getting closer to what Jesus, how we should think of Jesus, away from just a physical thing into kind of who he is. But then also what is really important, I think, is that we understand what he went through. Not just the physical look, but the, the scene of what he went through. We have to understand that Jesus was a servant. Jesus washed and still yet serves in the lowest, most humiliating of positions. And for this service, what he got was accused. He was constantly threatened. He was constantly misunderstood, which ultimately led to this, Jesus as condemned. Do we see what it cost Jesus to be who he was? Not just who he was, but condemned and crucified. Do we have eyes to see this, Grace Church? Do we have eyes to see Jesus like this? Pray with me, if you would. Jesus, I want to see you. I, I do, I, but I'm blind. I'm blind. There's so much in my way. There is so much that limits my sight. There's so much that keeps me from seeing 
And these words aren't enough today. They're not enough. The songs aren't enough. The gathering isn't enough to clear that blindness. But you are. Your spirit can do this. And that's what I trust in today. Not my own ability, not my own words, not, not our own good intentions. But your Holy Spirit that will come and take the scales from our eyes. So I ask that you do that today among us. That you remove scales from eyes. You restore sight where there is blindness. You remove clutter that is hiding you from being seen. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all, next week, Palm Sunday, two weeks from Easter today, we're nearing this, this journey that we've been taking through with Luke as we go through. We know that he's nearing Jerusalem now. He's turned, he's set his face, he's turned towards there. In, the, in this text this week, we get kind of a final encapsulation of Luke's three major themes that we've discovered. We see his theme of the problem of riches. That what we do with our stuff, our money, our wealth, our privilege, our prestige, more often than not creates a problem in our relationship with Jesus than, than is a sign of being blessed. And Luke addresses that here. We also see Luke's Constant insistence on Jesus, on showing Jesus as a friend of sinners, a friend of the outcast, the marginalized, the despised, and how they are held up as the heroes of the story rather than the butt of jokes, as they often are in our society. They are actually held up as people to be sought out and spent time with rather than uh, rejected and despised as we do. And then finally, his theme that is recurrent in all his writings of faith. That faith is the way we become part of Abraham's family. Faith is the way we re- is the only adequate response to seeing Jesus with that. So let's look at the text. They're going, and it says, then Jesus took the twelve aside and said to them, look, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is Jesus talking. We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets, will be accomplished. See, Jesus understood himself more and more with every step he took towards Jerusalem. He understood that he was the one that was written about. He was part of this divine drama. He was the one who was going to fulfill and do what had never been done. He goes on to say, For he will be handed over to the Gentiles who will be mocked, mistreated, and spat upon. They will flog him severely and kill him. Yet on the third day he will rise again. Now that sounds pretty clear, right? If I use those words in English, you would would not misunderstand me. You would not be thinking I was talking about a cruise, right? That, That those are severe things. Yet, but it goes on to say, but the 12 understood none of these things. Their saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what Jesus meant. And we spent a lot of time in the teaching team this week talking about what does that hidden mean? Was it some kind of purposeful masking that Jesus did? Was it somehow that he intentionally was was in one hand was telling them something, but on the other hand was preventing them from understanding it? That That seems probably not the best diagnosis of that. So what does it mean to have this hidden? What does it mean to have something 
clearly explained to us, clearly shown to us, described to us. You know, we get a sheet of paper, it's put in front of us. We read it, we see it, we hear it, but we don't, we don't understand. It's hidden. The meaning is hidden from us. It's a well-established fact. We see what we want to see. As human beings, we hear what we want to hear. I doubt anybody in here in this recent political season has experienced this. But if you've ever had a conversation with someone where the facts are so clear to you, the, the, the logic is so just ironclad, and you explain your logic to someone just assuming that they're going to affirm your stance, that they're going to see it the way you see it, and all you get is a dull blank stare. Your meaning is hidden from them because what you're saying doesn't fit with their perception of what is real or what is true or what is right. It's not a lack of clarity on your sake. It's not a lack of, of being logical or illogical or anything like that. It's just simply that what you're saying doesn't fit within that person's perceived reality of what is true. I believe that's likely what's happening with the disciples here. Is they're walking with Jesus. They have an image in their mind of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He has said, come and follow him. They have seen miracles. They have seen miraculous feedings. They have seen him destroy the arguments of the Pharisees of the religious elite. They have seen him stand up to the political officials of the day in defiance. Within their context, surely what they see is that that logical conclusion is that he is the Messiah. He's the one who's going to go and restore the throne of David in Jerusalem. He is the one who's going to kick the Romans out. He is the one who is going to restore true worship in the temple. And so when he says this crazy thing, these crazy things, flogged, spit upon, persecuted, it is hidden from them. So they go on, because as Jesus knows, showing people things is much more effective often than telling them things. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. When he heard a crowd going by, he asked what was going on. They told him, Jesus, the Nazarene is passing by. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. The son of David, the messianic pitch, the fervor of the crowd is, is reaching a crescendo even the beggars on the side of the road know about Jesus and are associating him with David's restoration of the kingdom. Those who were up front scolding him. Can you imagine? Somebody asking, somebody crying out to have their sight restored, and yet the crowd, don't make a mess. You, you beggar, don't make a scene. Is that how we often respond to those who are just desperately seeking relief from their situation, but we just tell them to stay in their place. But he shouted even more, Son of David, have mercy upon me. So Jesus stopped and ordered the beggar to be brought to him. When the man came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Can you imagine Jesus asking you that? Just stop for a minute. Jesus came to you and said, what do you want me to do for you? Aloha, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Imagine and he replied, it seems without hesitation, Lord, let me see again. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he regained his sight. And listen to what he did. And followed Jesus. 
It's one of the few instances we see in Scripture where someone that Jesus heals, like this, immediately becomes a follower of Jesus. He followed Jesus, praising God, and when all the people saw it, they too gave praise to God. And, and let's stop here for a minute, pause here for a minute, and think about what's happened. This man, he's, he's having his sight restored, so he wasn't born blind. Somehow he lost his sight. And he's become a beggar by the side of the road. That's, 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 that's a motif running through here as we go into Jericho. Jericho was a town people had to pass. It was a rich town. It was a town where they collected taxes. It was a town where people were expected to have money to pay the tax to get through there. So beggars would come along as well because they knew people were going to have money. And he supports himself. As, as horrible as it is, he supports himself by begging. And I think about that. I think about what he could have asked for instead of his sight. Jesus, can I have a, a better place to beg from? Jesus, do you have money? Jesus. But he says, I want my sight back. He doesn't want stuff. He wants his sight back with that. And again, here faith is presented as the key. He, his faith here is demonstrated by his unwillingness to be silenced. It's not some kind of esoteric belief in Jesus' divinity. He's, he's just heard rumors about Jesus. As far as we know, he's had no encounter with him. His faith is demonstrated here in his refusal to give up. His constant perseverance. I mean, he's, he's putting it on the line. He's risking being physically hurt by the crowd, by his persistence. And Jesus ascribes that as faith in this situation. And again, now we see a blind man who sees Jesus, who sees Jesus where his disciples don't. And then we switch, and we see these two, these two stories are in, are in dialogue with one another, and we come to one of the most famous stories in the Bible. But I want us to see it as part of a progression than rather than standing alone. So keep in mind what's happened to this point. It says, now Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. Now a man named Zacchaeus was there. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Just read in there, he was also very unpopular. He was trying to get a look at Jesus, but being a short man, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed into the sycamore tree to see him because Jesus was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Come down quickly, because I must stay in your house today. So he came down quickly and welcomed Jesus joyfully. And when the people saw it, they all complained, he has gone into the be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, it would be bad enough if Jesus just wandered into town and found a tax collector's house and gone into it. But you've got to understand the, the progression of the story here. Jesus is making his way towards Jericho. He's got a big crowd with him, okay? He's, a, he's, he's the deal right now. Like, people are excited. They're genuinely wondering what's going to happen when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. And so towns along the way have set up, kind of not banquets necessarily, but the prominent people have set up ways to receive Jesus, to welcome him into, because they want to hear the story firsthand. And hey, if things go good, it's going to look good for them if they threw a party for Jesus when he came through. Jesus walks straight through Jericho and doesn't stop. The text is clear. Jesus goes all the way through Jericho. 
And there's, there's some additional writings that if you study it, seems like the possibility that the, the sycamore trees at this day and age were only found on the far outskirts of town. So what's happened is Jesus is just kind of ignored Jericho. He heals the blind man on this one side, ignores the hospitality of the town as he goes through, comes to the other side, sees Zacchaeus, and then turns around and goes back into town in Zacchaeus's company. So not only has he dissed Jericho by refusing their hospitality going through one time, when he turns around and comes back in, it's with Zacchaeus, maybe the most hated man in all of town. Yeah, they were hot. They were not happy with Jesus at this time. This was a social snub of the highest order. But Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, half of my possessions I give now to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone of anything, I am paying back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this household, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what is lost. Where what is ascribed, the, the mode of salvation for the blind man is his persistence. Here, the mode of salvation for Zacchaeus is his repentance as shown through generosity of divesting himself of his wealth for the good of the poor and those he has cheated and wronged. Faith is always tied to actions of this sort. Faith by itself as a concept or an idea is just not faith with that. And whereas faith restores sight to the blind man, Zacchaeus' actions as faithfully acted out affirm his place as one of Abraham's son, as a part of Israel, the family of God. And in both these things, we see the agenda of Jesus resonatingly being affirmed. He came for that which is lost, to seek and to save it. All through the Gospels, we see Jesus redefining what it means to be Abraham's children. People whose identity is formed not by blood or ritual, <clears throat> not by race, but by faithful responsiveness to Jesus. And most people in the stories miss it. They miss it constantly. Jesus, they, they constantly miss it. Jesus did not come to affirm our biases or privileges or pretensions. He came to move us from the empire of darkness into the kingdom of light, to set us free from sin and death and to adopt us into his family and to heal our afflictions and restore our sight. So let me ask us, Grace Church, what, what are we missing? What are we as a community missing? Look, surely we're somewhat mistaken on how Jesus physically looked. We don't know exactly. I mean, we have our concepts, but that's, that's not really important. It's not really important. But if we, miss, if we miss how Jesus does stuff, if we miss what he is ultimately about, if we miss his agenda, where he's going, then not only are we ourselves blind, 
but we are leading other people into blindness as well. Do we see what Jesus is after? Do we see how he is here to seek and save that which is lost, not make us comfortable? Not affirm our biases, our privileges, our preferences? But to move us into right relationship with him, with ourselves, with each other, and with this whole world. And also, do we see, do we see what that's going to cost us? Because listen, these next two weeks, we're going to see what it costs Jesus. And we need to be reminded of that. We need to constantly be reminded of what it costs Jesus. But do we see what that cost us as his followers? That we too must walk a similar path? Honestly, y'all, I'd rather tell you another way. I wish I could offer you some other way. I wish I could offer you some other path that did not involve following Jesus through suffering and crucifixion. There ain't one. There's just not one. And listen, I've read through the book more than once. (laughs) And studied the stories and looked at the progression. And I would rather there be another way for y'all, but I'd really rather there be another way for me. I mean, when it comes down to it, I'm the one that has to follow, I'm the one that has to do that. And, And here's the deal I can't. I can't do it. I can't follow Jesus to the cross. I just, I, I just don't, I don't have enough self-will. I don't have enough whatever it takes. But as I read the story, I also see that that's not just my problem. That was the problem of the twelve. One of them is going to deny Jesus and eleven of them are going to desert. The truth is, nobody did. Not only is it true that I can't, the truth is, nobody did. Until until the resurrection. So if I have any hope in this, if I have any hope, as I recognize my own inability, but also the own, it's my own inability, but it's also the inevitability that that's where I have to go. Then the question becomes, how? How do I do that? I do that by faithful persistence. I do that by not giving up, by just like the blind man, just crying out time and time again, please restore my sight. Restore my sight. Restore my sight. I do that by hearing the call of Jesus when he says, today I'm going to come into your house. <clears throat> and I respond and say, it's all yours, God, then. You're coming into my house, it's all yours. I'll give it all away. I will give it all away. It's all yours. I respond faithfully that way. But that is a day-to-day-to-day thing. We cannot get ahead of ourselves. Because if we do, we'll either come up with some kind of romantic notion, our own idea of what it looks like, and we'll become the hero of the story, or we'll just give up in despair. We will just flat quit. And so we bring it back to... Today, Jesus, let me see you. 
Today, Jesus, I give it all to you with that. Listen, these two stories, the blind man and Zacchaeus, are instructive for us in this. How we respond, what we do with this going forward, will define our identity. Are we too daughters and sons of Abraham by faithful response to Jesus? Or are we going to be just another group of well-meaning people who miss it and stay stuck in our blindness? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And I'm going to lead us through a responsive reading because this demands a response. A word like this, you can't, well, you can. You can. You can ignore it. You can do that. I can ignore it. But we shouldn't. And so I'm going to ask us to stand, and I'm going to read. I'm going to read the first part of the reading, and then ask us all to read in unison the response as we do that. So, Andrew, if you could bring that up. If everyone could stand up, please, as we face the screen. I'll read the top, and then all of us will read the part in italics together. Abba, we have fixed our eyes inward, setting our own understanding, our own agenda, and our own preferences as the most important things. Forgive us, Abba. Turn our eyes towards you. Outwardly, we have looked to what dazzles, to what entices, to what distracts. Forgive us, Abba. We turn our eyes towards you. We have become blind through the constant stimulation of our sight fixed on ourselves and the things of the world, the flesh, and the evil one. Forgive us, Abba. Heal our sight. In our blindness, we have not seen you for who you truly are. Forgive us, In our blindness, we have not seen ourselves as we truly are. In our blindness, we have failed to see others around us, and as a result, we have ignored, abused, and rejected others. Abba, only in you is true sight found. Only in you is true healing found. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, Father. Amen. As we move into, you may have a seat, as we move into worship in this time of communion, understand that with this confession and the repentance and the faith that follows, there is nothing but welcome. There's no condemnation. There's welcome. There's welcome at this table. Daughters and sons of Abraham, through faith, come eat at the table of the Lord, set for you by the breaking of his body, the spilling of his blood, for the redemption of our sins and as a sign of the new covenant. Take this in the security and knowledge that you are forgiven and restored, accepted and loved, and participate with gratitude and faith. Thank you for being here this morning.